Hello and welcome to the Orchid Story Podcast for women who've experienced a big event in their lives that divided it into the before and after. I'm Rachel Nussbaum and I'm here to help you find meaning and healing through personal narrative now that your life looks different than the one you expected. I'm sharing stories from real life. The details may be different from your story, but the connection is universal. Head to orchidstory.com to get access to my free on-demand video training, a self-coaching session, so that you can start finding yourself, happiness, and purpose again. Now, on to the show. Oh my goodness, I still can't believe it. Kia Brown is on the podcast. I'm still a little surprised she said yes, but she did. And we had an amazing conversation. Kia is the hugest light, just the brightest shining star. And I have been following her for about a year now and just get so much out of learning about the world through her eyes. Kia Brown is an author, an actress, a journalist, and a screenwriter. She is the creator of the hashtag that went viral, Disabled and Cute. And I first found Kia through her book, The Pretty One, which is kind of like a memoir. It's a collection of personal essays as Kia walks us through uh, finding and embracing her identity and the journey to self-love. I highly, highly, highly recommend you check out Kia's book. And she's also in a new anthology with Tarana Burke and Brene Brown called You Are Your Best Thing. So lots of ways to find Kia. I'm just 100% delighted to have her and to share her with you. And I hope that you find her work and let yourself bask in the light of Kia. So here's our conversation. Enjoy. Hi, Kia. I'm so happy you're here. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Great. So um, I think you are going to read something from your book, The Pretty One. Yes, I will be reading the second essay in my book called Can We Sit for a Sec? I like this one. Okay, good. (laughs) My longest relationship has been with chairs. We are very happy together, committed and strong in sickness and health, so that's do us part, etc. There are arguments and disagreements as in any other relationship, but we apologize and we make up before nightfall, so we don't go to bed angry. The notion of love at first sight is a little cheesy, But true, Chairs and I have traveled around the world and back again. We cuddled on the beach in Puerto Rico, shared stolen glances in the Virgin Islands. We danced the night away in Grand Turk and gave some major PDA in the Bahamas. My chairs are royal with vastly different personalities, but an equal amount of appreciation for the butt of mine that sits in them. A few of them like to play it cool. They don't want me to think that they care as much as they do. And I like, I like to let them believe that it's working. After all, sometimes you have to let your partner think they have the upper hand to work toward the long game of the bigger thing you want later. 
However, you and I, dear listener, we know the truth. The chairs in my life love me. And honestly, I can't blame them. My favorite place to canoodle with my boo is at the mall. I love shopping. It brings me the kind of joy that I imagine having a child brings to a mother. Shopping is euphoric for me. It is my personal treat after long days. And when shopping, I always feel like anything is possible. Like the world is at my fingertips, waiting for me to step out in my new outfits and live my best life. Several times I have bought a few items I've forgotten to wear and have found them months later with the tag still on. But in my new clothes, I feel like I am debuting the best versions of myself to the world. I like to wear them where I know enough people will see me because if enough people don't see your cute outfit, did you wear one at all? In these moments, I enjoy the audience I often receive just for existing. In my new clothes, I don't care who stares. Strangers are often looking for a show for me, so why not give them one? And if I'm going to stand out, at least I will look cute while I do it. New clothes are great for all those reasons, as well as for the option of pairing them with the beloved older pieces already in my wardrobe as an excuse to wear these pieces just one more time. And of course, the smell and feel of new clothes is a beautiful thing. So when I'm at the mall, I often ask myself, what can I buy that I certainly don't need? Ice cream, a cookie, a pretzel, all three. How many items of clothing can I buy without trying them on? I believe my record is four full outfits and a cute pair of shoes because you can never have enough of the thing that brings you comfort. Thank you. You're welcome. After I read that particular essay in your book, I started, I found myself thinking more when I was out about chairs and spaces for people who have a disability to access and sit and be comfortable. And I found it really interesting that your chairs and the way you presented it, of course, your love affair with chairs is a PDA with your chair. Um, I think because of that, it really stuck in my mind. So for people who don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind, why, why are chairs important to you? Yes, of course. Well, chairs are very important to me because I have cerebral palsy. And I walk full time with a limp, but it just means that on my right side, I have slower reaction times, like delayed motor skills. It's harder for me to, you know, get up in the morning and get dressed in those cute outfits I love. And I need rest after long trips, walking somewhere, even after short ones, depending on the day. And so it's important for me to be comfortable and have places where my body can rest and recuperate from whatever it is that I have been doing that moment before you know I think that for me with this essay in particular the reason why I love it and the fact that it resonates with other people is because you don't think about Mm -hmm. how when you're out in the world there are people whether they're disabled or not even who just would like to rest and sometimes you can't get the rest you need if you're uncomfortable because then you're thinking the whole time like only a few more minutes until I can get up from this uncomfortable seat or the fact that a lot of places like malls, especially in the before times, before COVID, 
they don't have seats or anything for you to rest on. If they do, it's a bench that's outside the store that tells you, hey, you can sit for a couple seconds and then you gotta, you gotta get back up and keep shopping. So I think, I think for me, this was a way to introduce the fact that comfort is important and it's not just this thing that people do when they're quote unquote lazy. It's that our bodies can't constantly keep going every day, every second, every moment without that need for rest. And some of us just need rest in shorter bursts than others. Yeah, it's like an advocacy piece, but in this really creative way that you present it. Have you, before you wrote that, had you thought, have you, I mean, I'm sure you have thought a lot about chairs for your life, like during your life. Yes, absolutely. And it's just this fun thing that I do that I thought was silly at first and then I turned it into an essay so it worked out. But it's this thing that I've always been doing, sort of personifying um, objects that help me rest or help me, you know, adapt to the world because it's not designed for a body like mine. So whether it's giving a name to my laptop or my iPhone or the chair, just trying to find ways to make my need for adaption fun so that I don't feel guilty about it or that I don't feel like there's something wrong or bad about it I just tack a name onto it and give it a personality and uh you know try to find new ways to get people to understand the importance of like just resting your body whether you're disabled or not and I felt like you know me talking about how much I love chairs and have always loved chairs to be that way in for people because people recognize what a chair is they recognize you know, like when I'm at a dinner table, I sit at this kind of chair. Like when I'm in my office, I sit here and you know, my friend's house, this is what it feels like or in their car or whatever. And um, for me, it was really nice because a lot of people who were like, I never thought about, yeah. you know, what chairs feel like when I sit in them or like how long I'll need to be in one. And so it's really nice that, you know, that that essay seems to resonate with people even now. Yeah. And I think that whole rewriting the script of, um, rest being lazy like if we need to rest we're lazy mm-hmm. and doing it in this way that I don't even know if you say that in your piece but it's just so clear that this has nothing to do with that at all and this is a need it's not even a want it's right. a need for Kia and I I just yeah I think this piece is so great so if you haven't read the pretty ones everyone needs to get out there and, and get a copy of the book. One thing that really struck me in your book was how it seemed like for a long time, I don't know if it was, you didn't like realize that you were different. You have a twin sister or mm-hmm. your family didn't really talk about it um, like head on. And you kind of came around to the idea of it later. Can you talk? Yeah. I found that so interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Of course. So it was a mix of both, really. I I think because my mom, who I adore, was very much like, if your sister gets rollerblades or a uh, scooter or what have you, and your brother gets a bike, you're also going to get a bike, some rollerblades. A scooter will just have to find a workaround. And because, you know, I grew up in a family who never treated me like anything that I was doing was different or weird or wrong, I didn't realize that there was anything different at all. I thought everybody was doing it the way that I was doing it. I never internalized the idea that like, oh, we're doing this because 
I have a disability that needs to be adjusted to. It was just like, oh no, look, Leah's got a Razor scooter. Here's here's a scooter Kia with like uh, the two things on it that you can move yourself or like, oh, your brother's got a bike. Here's a bike with three wheels instead of two. And I just, I never internalized, oh, you know, my mom is doing this or my aunts and uncles and cousins are doing this because I'm disabled. So when I got to middle school and, you know, there was a kid who made fun of me for being disabled, that was when I realized because no one had ever, you know, really brought it up to me in a negative way before. They had never said, oh, you know, Kia, you look different and that's so weird. Or if they did, I never heard them because I would go home to a family that was just like, you know, treating me just like they would, you know, my sister or my brother or my cousins or what have you. So I never had to worry about it. And then to be hit with it like head on like that and to have it initially be a negative thing really absolutely impacted how I saw myself for years afterward. Yeah, it's you talk about how uh, you're a woman of color and how being black was like something you embraced with love from mm-hmm. early on. But then this idea of disability hit you in middle school. I mean, there's really like no worse time that right. Oh. That <laughs> and I found that kind of juxtaposition, like your skin color felt like a like an embracing, loving piece of you, and then the disability was like such a different can of worms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, so tell us about just some of that journey then. You you had a long road to the place where you are now of feeling more accepting and confident in who you are. Right. So basically it's because I grew up watching things like, you know, Brandy Cinderella and uh, Annie with Audrey McDonald and the Whoopi Goldberg, like rap and rhyme and special. So I was constantly seeing, you know, myself as a black person represented positively. And I was constantly seeing like, oh, we get to have happy endings too. And like people fall in love with us and we have families who care about us and what have you. But the inverse of that was like, whenever I would pass by somebody who was disabled, it was usually in those one of, one of those like, telethon things like the quick commercials or or somebody sprinkling holy water in one of those like 2 a.m infomercials and the person would get up from the wheelchair and they would suddenly be able to walk and so it was just different in terms of how I was seeing myself as a black person represented versus how I was seeing disability and so I was very quick to embrace being black and feeling like that's beautiful and I love you know, so many people in my life who are also Black, my family, and I had some friends that I was just like, oh, you know, we share this thing in common. This thing makes me just as worthy as them, and I don't have to question it, but when I got to the point where I recognized that I was disabled and I wasn't seeing anything really um, positive about it from from anyone in school or like, you know, just just not seeing it on TV, And, and I think as a 90s kid, a lot of things were like, if you're not seeing it on TV or you're, or you're not seeing it, you know, at school or in, or in a movie or like outside with your friends, then you're like, what is that thing? I wanna, I wanna distance myself from it. So it really took um, years and years and years for me to even one acknowledge positively that I was disabled, but also just to be comfortable with the fact that 
my being different didn't mean that it was inherently something to be ashamed of or to have to apologize for. And that took a lot of um, false starts and stops, like three steps forward, six steps back, you know, just trying to find reasons to keep going. And, and it really took me finding things outside of disability that I worked about myself first. So there's this whole thing about not putting worth in your work, right? But for me, in order to start my journey, I had to put worth in it. So I thought to myself, well, if you're writing these things that people enjoy and they seem to like, and like you're getting paid to do it, then there's gotta be something worthy about the person writing them. And so then it went from me being excited about people reading my things and liking them and like being a good writer to, to really doing the work of being like, well, here are these non-work things that people like about you, like that you're funny and you, you know, you smile with your whole face and your family likes that you, that you think that um, nothing bad is going to happen. Like I was very much a kid that was like, oh, everything is going to be perfect all the time. And, and um, I think it was about finding things outside of my physical self first that matter in order for me to see like, oh, I must matter just like this without it being like, oh, in spite of, because a lot of times people, strangers even will be like, oh, so you're doing all these things despite disability. And it's like, no, I'm doing all these things in tandem with, like it's not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything to get rid of it because I can't, I'm just doing things and adjusting to the world as it is like this. And I think for me, it was just about doing the everyday effort of being like, here are these things that are worthy about you. And here are these things that I like, three physical always and one non-physical. And that's what really got me here. And it sounds like a very simple, like simplified version, but it took years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, um, going back to what you just said about what people would say, you're doing all of this despite of your disability. Like, what's that about? That's about able-bodied people not being comfortable with disability. What, what's that about? I think that's what it, that's exactly what it is. At least that's what it seems in my experiences. Even now, you know, I'll get emails from people being like, I wish you didn't talk about being disabled so much. Or like, I wish you didn't even mention that you're disabled. And it's like, well, it's not this thing that I want to hide. Like, I think what people forget is that for disabled people, often we're not even thinking about it as much as other people who yeah. are disabled are. And when I mention in the book, like, yeah, it's it's a different reality for me to be a woman who is black and also disabled. And it's a different reality for me to be who I am in certain spaces and how that matters because, you know, race is also a part of that. Um, and so I got a lot of emails at first from white disabled people upset that I was talking about race or people who were not disabled upset that I was talking about disability. And so it was like a it was a no-win situation for a little bit there where it's just like, I'm speaking my truth. I'm not telling you that this is how it is for everyone. I'm just sharing my story and all of it is part of it, so. Yes, that's one of the things I love, love about you so much is like bringing all those pieces together and saying this is me and it, it seems unapologetic. I know from reading your work that it, and what you just described that it was a long road to get there. But I have to say that's like one of the reasons why I like you so much is because you're like, I am all of these things. 
this is me. And even then I think there's a, there's a piece of you that's like, and I know I'm still evolving and, and learning about myself. Yeah. Cause I think people sometimes are like, oh, you're good now. Like it's good now. Everything. Yeah. Well, none of us oh, are good now. Right, right. No one's good now. First of all, <laughs> second of all, you know, these things take effort. And so what I always, what I often tell, you know, specifically young people who reach out and they're trying to figure out how they can set their own journeys toward loving themselves or even liking themselves. I say it's everyday effort. Like I still have to work at it every single day. And I think it just allows people to, to see that, you know, it's not a one and done thing. This is the work that you do for the rest of your life. If you want to be your best version of yourself, you have to keep doing the work. And for me, it's like, I still have bad days. You know, I still have bad weeks, months, moments where I'm just like, oh, Pia, you're not doing enough. Like no one's gonna love you, blah, blah, blah. But I think at the end of the day, what I try to do is redirect those thoughts because I have the tools to be able to be like, actually, no, instead of saying that you can say this because this is also true. You know, I talk a lot in therapy. I love therapy about how important it is to make sure that you have counter arguments for your arguments. Mm. And that's a lot of what the four things is, is like my brain can tell me at the beginning of the day, like, you're not going to get anything done. Everybody's annoyed with you. Like, everybody just wants you to, like, take a break from them. And then, like, all of my friends will reach out, like, we miss you. Or, like, just there, there are random things that, that are within each day that I'm like, oh, well, this is proof to the contrary. You know, like, this, this just shows that, no, brain, you're wrong about X, Y, and Z thing. And so I always tell people, even if it's small, if you have a counter argument to the idea that, like, you know, you're not going to get anything accomplished today. Start small, do something small, and you've got something accomplished. It's not about, you know, showing up every single day and every single day is great and you're constantly winning. It's just like, you know, you truck on and every small win is just as important as every big thing that happens. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I feel like that's such great advice for for all of us, especially for women who are striving and achieving. And it's mm-hmm. like, the small wins count, you know, every piece of it counts. And even when people seem to be doing really well and super successful, it's like every day you're showing up. Yep, every single day. And some days the work is just, it feels impossible. And the best thing you can do is get out of bed, go brush your teeth, go to the bathroom and get back in. And that's okay too. Just the idea that like, we're not always going to be productive. Like not every single day is going to be like, I wrote three essays, four books, 10 screenplays. Like nobody, nobody is that productive all the time. And some days you just need to rest. And I wish that we lived in a culture that didn't constantly enforce the sort of rise and grind thing. And that's part of capitalism. But I just think also it tells people that if you're not constantly working, you are not worthy. And I say that from experience, like I work too much and I tend to burn out, but I know that there's value in absolutely doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I I totally agree with you. And I think it's taken a long time. It's only been after I've pushed myself to certain places that then I can be like, okay, we need to slow down a little bit here. And now I'm such a believer in rest, but Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I think I probably would have poo-pooed it just to be totally honest with you and been like, no, it's not, that's not for me kind of thing. So it really is like this huge shift 
that we have to make. Um, can I ask you a little more about your writing? So you said that writing and then putting your work in the world allowed you to start seeing yourself in a new way. Yes. When did you start writing in the grand scheme of life for you? Ooh, well, professionally, it was 2015 or so. Um, yeah, I think like early 2015, I had published my very first piece on this website, formerly known as femsflame.com. And I talked about what it meant to be, to grow up and being jealous of my sister and how I had to work to, instead of spending so much time on envy to see that like she is her own person and instead of being envious of who she is it's just about me being able to celebrate who she is and let that making our friendship stronger and our relationship stronger because I went away to college and I was like meeting all these great people and so excited and then I was like well wait your sister at home the one that you spent all of high school being jealous of and like nasty to has all these qualities that you have been, you know, loving in your friends at school. And so it really took me being away from her to be like, oh, Kia, you really need to work on your, um, on your relationship with your sister and you need to make sure that you're uh, treating her with the kindness that you give others. And um, then that led to another piece and another piece. And so my career just sort of like kept going. And then when the hashtag went viral I sort of used that as even more momentum yeah. to go um, even higher so yeah it was really just me putting work out into the world and then having people respond positively to it that really allowed me to be like "Ooh, maybe you know there is something yeah there. Tell tell us about the hashtag tell us what it is and what it did yeah okay <laughs> so the hashtag is disabled and cute and I created it on February 12th, 2017 to celebrate finally feeling good in my body, you know, after weeks and weeks and months of saying four things that I like about myself in the mirror and having like good thoughts actually stick, you know, doing that work of the counter argument every single day, um, I wanted to celebrate. And so to celebrate what I did was create the hashtag I posted four pictures of myself intact, disabled and cute on the end. And then the end of the week, it went viral. And then that next week it was global. Um, and so it really took off because I think for me, it was about a celebration of myself very selfishly, but I think it also allowed other disabled people to celebrate themselves and talk about the things that they liked. And I had hoped that my friends would use it. So I was thinking like, you know, five or 10 people online <laughs> being like, okay, Kia, cool hashtag, like great. And then it ended up going viral. And I think it was just because people were looking for um, a reason to celebrate themselves and not constantly be so steeped in the narrative that we're burdened or mistakes or, you know, it's just too much to be in our bodies. And I think one of the shining achievements of my career so far is the fact that people are still using it today because mm. you know? things online have such a short shelf life yeah, yeah. That, I was, that I'm surprised you know that people are still gravitating toward it and using it and it just and I'm proud of the way that I was able to and, and still am able to parlay it into other things you know like the hashtag became a catalyst for the book 
and that book became a catalyst for my children's book that comes out next year and then that became something else and something else and so I'm just trying to build on the idea that every single body is worthy and it's not about changing who we are to fit any narrative it's about walking into the room and being exactly who we are and being unapologetic and the idea that like if there is not room for us at a table we build another table it's not about you know any anymore because I used to think like oh well you know if if somebody would just let me in and like I can just you know make it work at, at, at whatever at whatever like proverbial table that there is you know I can just show up and, and hopefully open the door for other people but I think that I'm now at a point where it's like I'm gonna find my way in that room regardless and I'm going to get a door stopper <laughs> and prop the door open for people after me because I think I got so hung up at first on making sure that someone was telling my story that now I feel most comfortable telling it myself. And I realize that I have the ability to tell my own stories and the people that get it will get it. And the people that don't, maybe they will later, but I can't focus on you know, the negative or I can't focus on the fact that there are people who are just never going to get it or like me, like that's okay. I used to be this person that was like, I want everybody to like me, you know, everybody to read the book and think it's like the world's best thing and, the, and it's like brilliant. And I've been so lucky that people, you know, still care about it, even though it came out in the before time. Um, but I also think that it's allowed me to be like, okay, so focus on those people. Try your best to focus on the people who get it and the people who want to get it um, and less on the people who just don't care or don't like it for whatever reason, because they're entitled to their opinions. But I think the opinions that have to matter most to me are my own first and then are the people who are looking to understand what it, where it is I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's so powerful. Uh, I have to ask you about the anthology with Tarana Burke and Brené Brown. <laughs> it's like when I, I think I saw that they were editing an anthology together and I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. And I had read your book. I love your book. And I've been following you for a while on social media. And I was like, oh my gosh, Kia <laughs> is in this book. Wow. How, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, did so you just I, get a phone call from them. Like, how did that? So, Tarana and I did um, the Share the Mic Now campaign, oh, where yes, where it was Glennon Doyle, Lovey Ajayi Jones, and the woman who founded Alice and Olivia. They created this thing where it was like um, fifty black women take over the accounts, the Instagram accounts of fifty influential white women. And Tarana and I were a part of it. And we were in a Zoom. Um, I think, yeah, we were in a Zoom like an hour before she asked me to be a part of it. And we were talking about our experience and what it meant for us um, just to have those sorts of platforms. And then she was like, hey, Kia, what's your email? And I was like, oh, it's this, blah, 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 blah. And she was like, okay, good, I have a question. And she emailed me and she was like, listen, I'm doing this secret thing with Brene. What do you want to be a part of it? I didn't even know that it was like an anthology. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll do, I'll do, I'll do whatever it is. I adore you both. I think that you're wonderful. Sign me up. And essentially, 
just to be a part of something so cool and it was an instant new york times bestseller and i know yes to be able to talk about vulnerability and and what it means to be a black queer person in america and talk about why it is why it matters to share identity was so special and also to just be in you know conversation and, and among these like absolute powerhouses people that i've always looked up to and i'm like and there i am just you know there's my, there's my little essay and like yes, there you are these people yeah. that i just yeah that i admire and so to be a part of it to even be asked i was just like are you sure okay if you're sure i'll do it <laughs> were you the, are you the youngest person do you know i wonder if you I are i don't know i could be but i don't know yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, I'm, I'm not through the whole thing. I've read your essay, of course, and, and several others, but um, it is amazing. I should say the name of it. It's I have it right here. You are your best thing: vulnerability, shame, resilience, and the black experience. And it's an anthology, and you can get it wherever books are sold. It's brand new. I mean, it just came out really recently. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think it was the. 20 something of, of of last month so yeah it's it's new new yeah that's not even yeah that's not even a month that's like almost a month since it's first come out so mm -hmm. um have you like has that i don't know to me if this is just again like putting yourself in other people's shoes and not really knowing not really knowing and understanding i'm like it's like he is just going to the stratosphere now <laughs> she's taking over the world um but i i hope that it will open even more doors for you i hope so too i mean honestly that's what i want world domination <laughs> <laughs> I but yeah that. i hope so i think i think that like it's been nice to explore different types of storytelling and and even even now I'm, I'm trying to make my way into film and TV. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm co-writing a musical, which is funny because I can't sing, but I, I, I'm loving that as well. So I'm just trying to do a bit of everything and hoping that people, you know, respond. But yeah, what's the, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Just telling all these stories is a dream come true. Yeah, this was gonna ask you, what's the through line? So if you're, you're doing books, you're doing you write like you do interviews of people and mm -hmm. you're a journalist yes you're writing screenplays and musicals and is the story is story the through line like that connects all these different things yes story it's 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 the it's the story like talking to people you know just me being naturally nosy is is really a part of it like the, the reason that i love journalism so much is because i can talk to people and figure out who they are and what makes them who they are and why. And so that's why I love it so much. And then when I'm telling my own story, I'm doing that internal investigation of like who I am in this moment, what makes me who I am and why. And then with fiction, which is my first love. So whether I'm working on like a movie or a TV show or, you know, what have you, the, the musical, it's about like whether I'm working for some from somebody else's um you know material like the, the, the musical that i'm helping co-write is based off of another book so whether i'm doing that or that i'm doing my own thing in some way it's just the excitement of being able to tell a story that feels fresh and mm. new and exciting and that i can pull something from my lived experiences 
to bring, you know, characters to life. Like I think the thing with me and, and books is like my next book, my next set of books. One is, like I said, a children's book, it's fiction. And then I'm also working on a YA. Oh, awesome. I'm just really excited to keep, you know, telling stories that whether I made them up or I'm talking to people or I'm talking about myself. I think, yeah, the, the through line is absolutely just me being able to share ideas and share thoughts and like get them down on paper. <laughs> you, um, and bringing your Kia's lived experience is really important because mm -hmm. it, it, because we know, because you experience this, that you have not seen what it is to be a person with a disability like reflected back to you in the media. Is that what right. would you say about your own lived experience, why it's important to bring that into to all of your projects? Yes, absolutely. I think that that's a major part of it is just to not, to, to make it feel authentic to the story. Like there are stories that I want to tell where the main characters aren't disabled, yeah. you know? And I hope to also tell those stories too, but just to give people, you know, the sort of representation I never had and to give people a chance to look at life through a lens that they don't normally see. You know, right now we stand at a place in entertainment where if you see a disability story, it's usually a white person who is male presenting and they're a wheelchair user and it's sort of the same personality thing where they're like sarcastic and mean and they hate themselves because they can't quite figure out why anybody would ever love them. And then if they do like someone, it's usually a non-disabled girl who um, doesn't like them back. And so they spend the rest of the movie or the TV show like down and out and angry that they're disabled. And I think because I know what that feeling is like and because I know what it's like to feel that way about myself, I guess I'm just tired of seeing it because it's all we get to see. And for me, the biggest, and the most important thing about telling story is to have a happy ever after because people make fun of happy ever afters all the time but when you live in a world where you're not even seeing yourself you don't even get to survive to the end of the episode or a movie i think happy ever afters are revolutionary in that way mm -hmm. and so whether i'm creating a character who is disabled or not i want to make sure that when you come to my work what you'll see is somebody who is happy at the end of it and it's not going to come easy and it's not you know they'll go through things and it might look sketchy for a while but at the end of it there's going to be something that you can take with you that allows you to be like oh maybe it's not just cheesy that people have happily ever after maybe it's important for people to see themselves thriving and winning and to see people who get the thing that they want because we live in a world so tied to regardless of what the person looks like so tied to making everything so angsty and like dark and mysterious and people think that if somebody if there's a thing with a happily ever after it's a tv show or a movie then somehow it's le like it lessens the craft but it really doesn't it really doesn't like I get so excited when I'm watching something and I know like at some point, the characters are going to be okay. You can put them through it, but to me, knowing that at some point, these people that you get to know, whether it's a movie or a TV show, are going to be fine, or they are, or they end up being fine, whether you know it or not, that to me is special. Yeah. 
So you think happy ever afters are revolutionary and you also think joy is revolutionary. Yes. Yes, very much. Uh, so I have the expression here that I've learned from you. Joy is revolutionary. Choose it. Tell yes. us about this expression. Well, I just think that we are often told to be like aloof, to be cool. And like, it's fun not to care. But for me, I get excited about everything. Joy, <laughs> I get excited about everything. Like joy to me is one of the best possible emotions because when I feel happy and I allow myself the room to feel like excited about things first of all people join me in that excitement which means I'm sharing it and that also feels good but it also just allows me to keep going like for me I and I, and I will talk about this soon I'm sure but to me joy being revolutionary is not just about like yay happiness all the time everything's great and wonderful it's that I get the option to find something good about each day even if the day is like a crapshoot if I had cheesecake that day or like I got a really nice email or I crushed an essay or I'm doing a really good section in this movie or something like just finding small moments of joy allows me to keep going but also just allows me to be okay with celebrating the small stuff you know yeah. back to just being able to realize that the small stuff also matters yeah so I'd love to hear your take on this for me I have found that joy exactly what you said like I do feel more comfortable in sharing my struggle than mm -hmm. in experiencing joy myself like allowing myself to experience joy and then sharing that with other people for some reason that seems like a harder thing to experience than than the hard stuff than the anxiety than the grief than the stress so I'm wondering if when you during all those years where you were really struggling with your identity was joy a part of that or has joy come later? Joy definitely came later because even in my early work, a lot of it was like a diary entry, you know, like I'm proud of it still, but a lot of it was just like, my life is so hard because I'm disabled and like, this is my lived experience and it sucks and I hate it. But it wasn't until I started to see my work and allow myself to think about the things and the people that made me happy did joy actually come did i like hope has always been my favorite word but i always say that it was always really hard for me to find it and to foster it and to have it and it's the same thing with joy um i didn't i didn't care to be happy i was so used to being miserable like i think for me in a lot of ways it's easier to share your suffering because suffering feels universal and joy feels like this elusive thing that you find sometimes but for me in order to keep going I decided that no you have to find joy or try to find joy in every day or every other day because some days it's just not going to be there but you have to know that it's going to come the next day there's going to always be opportunity to find it whether it's immediate or a little bit later down the line and um the, the quote you're referring to is this on this limited edition t-shirt that I made with the bonfire and they're available until 
the 31st, but essentially the reason I wanted, when they reached out to ask if I would be interested in doing something, the reason that I chose those exact words and that exact quote is because I think that if we can find joy in every single day, we can be better people, not only to ourselves, but to each other. Because if we can find things that make us happy or at least make us smile, then we're less likely to tear other people down for whatever reason. And we're less likely to tear ourselves down because if we're focusing on the thing that brings us joy, then we're able to be our better selves. And I think the best way to be a good person to other people is to be a good person to yourself and to start that work inward. Yeah. Yes, that's, oh, it's so true. That just like hit me when you said that. <laughs> and I love how you use these words, choose joy seek joy find joy discover joy it's not like you're not waiting for joy to come to you right you have to go get it you have to go get it and it can be really small yeah it can be so small like the other day this is how I know that I'm getting older by the way is that <laughs> I I do that I am on this like Facebook page where it's like Amazon deals and I literally told my mom I'm like listen there's an Amazon deal set on like these towels and I want to and I want to get the towels and that was my joy for the day was like me trying to figure out how to get these towels that were on sale that were like the big large yeah. extra fluffy towels oh, yeah. and I was like that's my joy and I like I just think that you know it doesn't have to be something major it doesn't always have to be like oh I got a win at work it's like oh I've got a pint of ice cream in the freezer waiting for me when I'm done with my work for the day or I've got you know, these really cute new socks or my friend said something kind about me. It doesn't have to be some large, humongous thing that happens to you every day. It can be the small stuff too. And I think that like joy is one of the things that you have to go after because it's not, it's not gonna sit there and wait for you. You have to go chase it because if, if you're not gonna find it, it's gonna go hang out with somebody else. It's gonna yeah. be that thing where it's like, oh oh you're not free then let me go see what you know Erica's up to or what Lexi is doing let me just go see what they're doing and see if they're interested in hanging out it's like the best things that you go after are the things that you have to work for and so I find that I have to work for the things that matter most and to me joy and hope and having them even when I feel like at my lowest it's worth it to have to do that work to be like oh well this thing is good about today even if I don't feel good about me or I don't feel good about a work thing or I think that could have been better I'm like well at least you have you know the ability to find joy in something so like watch something that brings you comfort or or read something that brings you comfort or remember that there are people who love you sometimes that's that's the small pocket of joy just remembering that people care yeah. Um, so yeah, wherever wherever you can find it, but you definitely have to do the work of choosing it because it will choose someone else. Oh, so yeah, it's so powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Of course. Um, okay, so I think we are. I, I we could I could talk to you all day, but I think we're wrapping up. So is there anything I did not ask you about Kia that you wanna share? Ooh, let me think. And um, I want you to tell us like where to find you, but anything else before that? Anything else? Um, I don't think so. I think if, if I could leave anyone with anything, it's just that um, you 
are exactly where you're supposed to be right now. And and I don't mean that like job wise or physically, I just mean that like the journey that you're on is built just for you. And I hope whether you're in a great place or a not so great place that you find ways to love on yourself and to give yourself the love you often give to others and to give yourself the grace you often give to others. And I hope that when you wake up every day, you remember that there is someone somewhere glad that you did it and really excited to see who you become. Um, and I'm rooting for you. Mm, I love that. The journey you're on is built just for you. That's so good. I'm mm -hmm. so powerful. Okay, now tell the people where they can find you and then just mention the name of your book again so we okay. have it squared away. Sure thing. So you can find me on the internet on Instagram and Twitter at Kia, K-E-A-H underscore Maria, M-A-R-I-A. -A. No, it's not my middle name. It's a nickname. It's the whole thing. And you can find my work at kiabrown.com. I have a book coming out next year via Cochlea Books. It's a children's book called Sam's Super Seeds. So that's available. Look out for that. For seeds, like in the chairs. Yeah, Sam's Super Seeds. The, the editor really liked that essay in the book. And that's how that was sparked. So things, great things can happen when you just, you know. Oh, show sorry up to interrupt you. I was just like, oh, that's so cool. That's where we started. <laughs> now we're coming back around to the seats. Okay, yep. keep going. So yes, you can look out for that next year. I've also got a YA coming out. That announcement will happen soonish. I am in the anthology that we mentioned earlier, You Are Your Best Thing, available now where books are sold. And I'm working on you know, I'm working in film and TV, and so hopefully those things will become something, and you can watch slash see those. Um, but yeah, you can find me pretty much always on Twitter or Instagram, again, at Kia underscore Maria, and you can find my work at KiaBrown.com, and hopefully one day you will see me on your TV screens, yes. and when we can go into theaters again, silver screens, fingers crossed, so we will see. Yeah. All places, all doing all things hoping for the best. Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm, you're rooting for us and I'm so rooting for you. I'm a huge cheerleader of yours. And I think seeing you, uh, like you said, seeing you finding joy in yourself has allowed me, so I'm watching you do that. And then it allows me to kind of push myself to find that joy. So thank you. You're welcome, I'm so glad. It means a lot to me because you know when you're doing like when you're doing the work you're doing it head down yeah you're not thinking about you know whether or not people are getting it you hope they are like people always ask me like so when you write do you think of audience and i'm like literally i've convinced myself that maybe four people will read whatever i write so like i don't even i don't even think about it and so it's really nice to hear that i'm so glad that it's helping you in some way yes, yes. thank you for being here i'm so grateful for you this was this was wonderful. I knew it was going to be, of course, <laughs> but thank you. Thanks, Kia. I want to ask you, who in your life needs to hear this story today? Go ahead and share it with them. And if you love this show, leave me a rating and a review on iTunes. Head over to orchidstory.com if you want more from Orchid Story. 
And remember, your story is your strength.